Anybody? Crickets? Okay. <laughs> I'll work on my material some more. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 49 of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hi there. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. John Papa. Howdy. Lucas Rubelke. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that is Deborah. I should have asked how to say your last name. Karada? That's close enough. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Hi, I'm Deborah Karada. I'm a consultant and software developer in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm also a plural site author, and I really love Angular. Nobody on this show likes plural site authors. <laughs> So uh, we brought you on the show to talk about, I think in the email you said business app developers. In our pre-show discussion, we were saying line of business developers. Do you want to kind of give us a brief explanation of who these people are and how they're different from maybe other developers that we think about in other industries or other areas of industry? Sure. Yeah. When you think of a line of business application, you normally think of applications used by business users to perform various business functions. And these are different in that the expectation is, is that they're developed in-house. So small companies, medium-sized companies, and uh, some large companies that are doing custom development to support their businesses. Unlike companies whose software is their business, these companies have a business doing something else, making widgets or whatever, and, uh, you know, restaurants or managing properties or whatever. And the software is there purely as a support mechanism and a, a cost center more so than a profit center uh, for the entity. The business software developers or line of business developers then are the developers in these small, medium, maybe a little bit larger companies that are developing all of this 
software for use internally. That's really interesting because most of the companies I've worked for, and I'm a freelancer now, and still most of the most of the work that I've done is, you know, we're building the product. And so they're usually pretty willing to pour more money on us in order to make more stuff that they want. Uh, it seems like the line of business folks wouldn't have those kinds of, of opportunities. Maybe they would. But how do these apps then look different from the apps that we're, we're dealing with as software developers that build a product that is out there on the web for everybody to use? Uh, well, f- frequently, because of exactly what you just said, they aren't given huge budgets for these things because they are considered frequently to be cost centers. And so they don't get a lot of money for you know UI designers. And so frequently, they look very... Twitter bootstrap. Plain, um, or they look very much the same as all the other ones using just Bootstrap. I think Twitter Bootstrap would even upgrade sometimes from what I see. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, again, there has been talk recently about changing this kind of environment so that people would start thinking of these. Uh, software development units more as productivity centers because they are improving the productivity of the entire office. But in most management structures, they're still considered to be cost centers and they're working on cutting costs and not wanting to spend extra money on, you know, themes or a designer or any of that. They mostly just want to get it done. I think one of the other things that really distinguishes the line of business application developer from a lot of these developers who are uh, working on at companies that do software as a business is that they frequently have a much broader set of things that they have to do. They have to uh, manage office and do the office apps in addition to any old access 2007 apps that they still have to maintain in addition to, you know, VB apps from 2003 that they're still maintaining. And uh, so they are frequently required to have in their toolbox a huge amount of uh, ability to quickly go in and update apps that might not have been brought up to date and are really old. And and so they have to sort of know all of these different technologies and being able to do all of this really quickly because there are eight more departments behind wanting their uh, little fixes done or whatever. Yeah, they, and they often have to deal with legacy data, data right. that's created someplace else. They sometimes get to start from scratch, but they usually don't. They're not lionized for their great user experience because that just doesn't seem to, you know, that, that it's hard to even get them to think about that. They are concentrating a lot on gathering user input from end users, right? I mean, they, they're, there's a lot, like if you think about a Twitter app, like there's a box you type in and you're done. There's one box and they display a lot, right? Whereas my experience with LLB apps, tell me yours, is that they are often a lot of forms over data. Isn't that right? Yes. And a lot of times, you know, that sounds somewhat simple. You're just going to have a form, you're going to have some data, you're going to display it. But most companies have just amazingly complicated business rules that they're trying to put in there. You know, like um, 
I've done work with insurance companies and the massive quantities of rules that you can't do this if you're doing that, or if you buy this, you can't buy that, or um, if you buy these two things, then it's a different price. If you buy those two things with a third thing, then it's a different. I mean, it, it has very complicated and extensive business rules, and those rules also you know, change from time to time because of tax laws or government or, you know, they just bought the company down the road. And so now they're trying to implement all of their rules as well. Or uh, so there's a lot of change that's happening. And these poor line of business application developers are supposed to be reacting to these things and trying to get things done uh, really quickly. And even the testing side of the house can be significantly different. I worked with one medium-sized company who was completely against spending any money for testing, any kind of unit testing, any kind of developer testing, because all the software was just going to be used by their internal users. They can be the testers. So why spend any money at all doing any testing? It was the most absurd thing I'd ever heard. Yeah, but that but you do run into that. And, you and, do, and and, and as you say, the business rules and also the business model, the sheer variety of things you can make rules about because you've got these big model, you know, orders, uh, details, products, categories, blah blah blah. I mean, if you drew the graph of the interaction of the different components that uh, or or sort of domain objects that are in there, it's really quite extensive. And again, if you look back at sort of the products that are developed for consumers. They generally don't have, you know, that are consumer facing. They they don't have complex business rules. What's the business rule for a Twitter box, right? And they don't have rich uh, data models either, in which they're expecting the consumer to type into it because you can't ask the user to type the consumer user to type in a whole lot of stuff. So right. I, I I think that yeah, it's a completely different set, and they're also under real time pressure to deliver features, aren't they? Yes. So they val you know they put a lot of value on ease of development. That's a, there's a real high premium in an ALOB space on how quickly you can develop and deliver a change or the original stuff, right? Oh, yeah. The idea of release when it's done or when it's right, I mean, that never comes up. That's a, never, that's a luxury you don't ever get in line of business applications. That's correct. We want you to finish it on time along with everything else you're doing. Everything is priority number one and high quality. And by the way, there's no time after you deliver to actually fix anything with technical debt. That's, and that's freelancing. To, yeah, and in addition to all of that, you're expected to do the corporate meeting where we're going to discuss what new phone that we're going to be giving everyone. <laughs> right. So I'm wondering, do they tend to have a steeper learning curve than other developers, or is it about the same and just different? Because it seems like there'd be a whole lot more just business domain knowledge that you'd have to know in order to provide for your particular company and the way that they do things as opposed to, you know, being a developer that, sure, the app may be specialized to a particular community, but, you know, you mostly can just work in the market. Yeah, it's really hard to generalize about any group of people, but I would say in general, you'll see a lot of line of business application developers have to be significantly broader because they have to know 
Access and SQL Server and Oracle and the Office and, and, you know, all these different environments that they have to maintain products for. And so they frequently can't get as deep in any one of them. Like if your job was developing Twitter, I mean, that's all you would do all day, every day, and you would know those tools inside and out and you would have um, some of those luxuries. But frequently you end up not having the time to really dive deeply into any one tool. And again, that's kind of a generalization. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some companies, though, that have tried to focus on a specific set of tools. I recently spoke to a couple of software developers at a conference I was speaking at, and they said that they set up a complete architecture, an entire set of internal tools, libraries, techniques, and everything that they could possibly think of around the development of very, very quickly building web forms applications. So they could go get requirements from a department that needed a new something, and they could use all of these tools and pre-built pieces and everything and very quickly come up with a web forms app. And then they come to my talk on Angular and they go, okay, what do we do? <laughs> do we keep going with this whole web forms thing that we have because we have all of the pieces and the techniques and our development team is knowledgeable on how to put these things together quickly or do we change paths and what's the risk with that and how do you possibly explain to a non-technical manager why you would want to give up all of this background that you've prepared to make life easier to go down this new path. Well, does it make, so, it, does it, make it easier? I mean, this is a great segue into the whole Angular and spa world. I mean, what are the forces that you're seeing that are driving people to abandon the comfort of web forms and go to, say, an Angular-type app in order to deliver the, you know, the same kind of LOB app? What do you see in there? Well, some of the key benefits that people are seeing with Angular is it's uh, data binding so that you can very easily do forms over data. It has all of the validation so that you can very easily do all those business rule validation things that you need to do. With 1.3, they made custom validation and async validation so much easier. So there is a lot that you can do now very easily, but it's just that big step over and then re doing what you had done in terms of getting everyone trained on, you know, your whole development team trained on how to use the tools and what your new UI layouts are going to look like and, and so on. Now, just to clarify really quickly, you've used the term forms over data a couple of times. Now, does that actually have a particular meaning to you? Because I'm not sure what you mean by it. Well, I usually think of forms over data as uh, an application that primarily is either displaying information to the user or requesting information okay. from the user. So it's not doing something, you know, like Twitter has got all of those things to show you all the tweets and to sort all those tweets. And uh, But when you're talking about line of business applications, you've got big forms with 50 different data entry fields on them that you have to that the user has to fill out or update or whatever so it's a a lot more data entry and data display 
and a lot more of those like either tab interfaces where you're drilling into things and then entering some more data or navigating from page to page to right. find a new set of some things to type into, right? Yep. So one of the things that I, I'm, I'm curious about is we're talking about line of business applications. So a lot of the developers who work in business and enterprises these days, you know, Angular is still relatively new to them. And even if you go back you know, a year, most of them it's pretty new to. A lot of them have been working with things like Java or WPF or Silverlight and .NET or ASP.NET, PHP. What I'm noticing from the, those I interact with there is when they're introduced to Angular, Spa, JavaScript world, Gulp, Grunt, NPM, Bower, all these different terms, these are very, very sharp developers who are instantly immersed into 10 new things or more that they have to learn. Are you seeing that, Deborah? And when you do, how are you helping them get there? Or kind of what are those challenges that you find that are easy to overcome in that space? Well, one of the things that's uh, really nice that has helped some teams that I've worked with move to Angular easily is that the way that Visual Studio is set up is if you're a Microsoft shop and you already know Visual Studio and you're a line of business developer who has used Web Forms or WPF or heaven forbid Silverlight and now you want to move to Angular, your tools can still be the same. You don't have to learn NPM. You don't have to learn Gulp or Grunt or transpilers or loaders, or you don't have to learn any of that stuff. Because of some of the work that you've done, John, and that Microsoft's done, you can just go to the NuGet package manager and say, I want Angular. You can say, I want Bootstrap. You can say, I want Angular routing. You can say, I want uh, resource management in order to talk to the database. And it just comes down and works just like web forms and Windows forms and anything else that you might have done in Visual Studio. And so that's been really nice in terms of providing a real easy path for people already knowledgeable in Visual Studio to move over um, from something else into Angular because it it's still the same tool and it's still the same IntelliSense and the same techniques and such. So I, I grew up outside of the Microsoft fold. What is NuGet? Uh, NuGet is a tool inside Visual Studio that you just go to your project and say manage NuGet packages. And then you can search online and pick anything uh, that you want to download and it automatically downloads it from wherever. You don't have to know where. And it puts it into your project so that it's actually all right there, all of the code that you need. So you don't need to know where to get Angular or where to get uh, Bootstrap or where to get any of the other libraries that you might want to use because they've all been packaged up and are, are ready to go. So it's basically the package manager that's provided inside Visual Studio. So it's like NPM, except it has a UI component that's built that extends... Visual Studio. Yeah, there's a, there's a command line, too, for that, Charles. Okay. Uh, so what happened is NuGet existed for a long, long time, and originally it was mostly used for things like DLLs and other packages that you could pull down. But as the web started to unfold and things like NPM and Bower were there, uh, and it was less, I'm going to say, going on a limb and say it was less sure, you know, kind of who was going to be the leading package manager out there, people started throwing in JavaScript libraries like Angular, such as me, into NuGet to have another way to get Angular into your 
Microsoft applications. So NuGet became a place where you could get anything you wanted. But now where Microsoft is heading is NuGet is great for you know DLLs or, or like jar files are with Maven, but if you want to get web components, that's really left to NPM or Bower and you know kind of the best tool for the best job. I think that the the essence of Deborah's point is that yeah you know it, Visual Studio provides a comfortable familiar environment in which you can graphically through point and click get a lot of your work done, drag drop, get a lot of uh, visual feedback. You never have to leave the friendly confines of Visual Studio to get the job done. Uh, you don't have to to drop down to a command line and and try and remember what those commands are and type them in. And you can reach in one place for all of the different technologies that you need and kind of bring them together so that it all feels like one comfortable, helpful environment. And Microsoft has has done a great job over the years of creating that all-encompassing, friendly environment uh, and that LLB developers count on in order to be able to cover the ground they have to cover. Isn't that pretty much what you're driving at there, Deborah? That was very eloquently said. Thank you, Ward. Of course, the, the wheels are coming off that these days, but that's certainly what they've traditionally provided to make it good for the LLB developer. There's yes. still, though, there's still, though, and I'd love you to comment about this... You know, I mean, they, they do all that, and that certainly makes it easier for them to sort of take on a new technology such as HTML, JavaScript on the front end, and Angular in particular. But it ain't WebForms. WebForms was a nice drag, uh, you know, visually drag the, the, the component onto the screen and write some C-sharp in the back, you know, the code behind and go. Are you able to help the Angular developer get to the point where they're almost as productive as that? I've been training a lot of newbies, so I've been doing a lot of Angular 101 style classes. I'm doing another one at the uh, upcoming Angular U conference next week. But what I'm seeing people say in those uh, situations is that it's very clear to them what they're needing to do, even if they came from a web forms environment, that they feel because of the fact that Angular has the smaller HTML fragments and the way that it's put together and modularized, that it puts the application in kind of bite-sized pieces, and they're feeling relatively comfortable with that. It's not, you know, appearing that scary to them. Uh, but there still is a lot of feeling from a lot of these developers that if you have to go to the command line, something is absolutely wrong. You're doing something wrong if you have to go to the command line to type something in because everything you need should be somewhere in Visual Studio. Yeah, yeah. Which features of Angular, which like top three features of Angular are most important to LOB developers? Um, I would say the data binding is the one of the key ones. Um, one way or two way? Two way, absolutely, because you know there's so many data entry forms that they have to deal with. The oh, you're feeding Ward. I know. I just, <laughs> that was that was like dang. Just wanted to bring that forward. Go ahead, Deborah. Tell them the truth. Now you made me forget what the other two were that I was going to say. Um, 
So that's one all of there them is. is but Warren that, would say that's all there is, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh you guys are cruel. That is all there is. The no, the modularization so that, you know, your controllers are uh, very clean little bits of code. So you're not telling them that they need to write, you know, 200 line JavaScript files. You just have to write that little bit of JavaScript and then you can do the rest in services. And I think that organization helps them kind of picture how it's going to fit together and it's not quite as scary as looking as some of the, you know, pure JavaScript jQuery sample apps where you have, you know, some big long page of of complex looking uh, JavaScript. So those are the two main ones. Uh, and then things like routing is very helpful as well so that you could do a nice tab-based UI and and use like UI router to have routing within routing to do, you know, the tab-based pieces and so on. Are people writing custom directives or is that something they just don't need? I found that a lot of people don't initially do that, but at some point they find functionality that they want to repeat, like one of the common ones is, you know, there's so much code involved with validation and wouldn't it be nice, excuse me, wouldn't it be nice to do a custom directive that would, you know, help with some of that kind of validation and, and that kind of thing. But in our 101 courses, we don't even show them how to do that. One of the things that appears a lot in LOB apps, in my experience, are grids sometimes even editable grids. What are you recommending that people do or how are they coping with that in the Angular space? It's an interesting question because I, I did a, a Pluralsight course called Angular Line of Business Applications. And in that course, I had an entire module on working with grids because grids are so commonly used in line of business applications. And I got it all working and it was great. I went to record it and the grid that I used was being completely rewritten and the version that I had downloaded didn't work at all with the one that I had and completely didn't work. And so that whole module got tossed. I understand that now, which is almost, what, eight months later, <laughs> that the new grid uh, is now operational again and is now called NG grid instead of UI grid. But I have not yet gone back to try it. How's that for a long answer to a short question? <laughs> No, I, so I th- let me I push th- back a little on some grids, though. I mean, words you're talking about them, Debbie, you're talking about them, and I've used them recently. Grids are always that big staple of LOB. I've got my personal opinions on this, and I feel like the grids that are out there, none of them are great. They all suffer problems, but this isn't a unique thing to Angular. We had these issues with .NET and you know other technologies too. Are we asking the wrong question with grids, though, when people need them? Meaning, are people using the wrong controls to solve the problem. Let me ask this another way. Would you put a grid on a phone? Well, now you're going to get into a fistfight with me on that one because I don't think of an LOB app as belonging on a phone. I mean, Deborah, you're, you're t- the typical modality is the browser, right? Uh, yeah, because, you know, again, most line of business applications are asking the user to enter 50 bits of data. There's no way that you would want to try to do that on a phone. Because it, it wants, you know, the price of the product and the color options and the, you know, whatever. It's, it's just got huge amounts of, of bits of information or for any particular insurance policy, there's tons amounts of typing involved and you wouldn't want to do that on a phone. Okay. So frequently so what I. specifically talking. That's right. So we're specifically talking about line of business. You mean apps that are 
sit down at the desk at a desktop computer as opposed to apps that could be used by a business? So just the ones where you're actually entering data. Well, usually there are also kind of the management apps, and those could potentially be on a phone, and then those wouldn't have grids for data entry because those would be more the manager's summary. So a manager would be able to come up and say, okay, you know, how many widgets do we currently have in inventory or how many widgets have each of our sales people sold this week or, you know, that they would want to get summary kinds of information. And that would also be considered a line of business application, but it's more the uh, management console kind of an app as opposed to a forms over data kind of app. And I guess that's where I'll, I'll disagree a little. I, I think there's definitely a place for, for grids and things like that and the sit down at a desk and do it on a laptop or a desktop. But I also believe there's a, a good place for business apps to be using phone and iPad and other devices as well with entering data. And I don't mean entering grid data. God, no, please no. But I guess kind of where I was heading more towards, and I'd like to hear your opinion, is I get asked a lot about, hey, John, what do you think about this application and the screen? I've got 22 tabs on it. Each tab has a grid. Each grid has a grouping, which has a tree view nested inside of it, which has got a partridge and a pear tree inside of that. My first concern there is what the heck are we actually trying to accomplish? And is that a good thing to do in a business app? And are we still seeing this everywhere? Or am I the only one who sees this stuff? Yeah, and I I think part of that is that, you know, you start with some little prototype that you did to kind of show how the user might enter data in one tab. And suddenly, four years later, it has those 12 tabs and six trees and, you know, whatever. These things tend to grow uncontrollably. So instead of a nice tree with beautiful branches, it sort of gets, you know, shoved in any direction that it needs to go in order to get things done quickly. And so I think you see, yeah, Russian stacking dolls. Um, so you do see quite a bit of that, though I think that in general, developers try not to do that, but frequently that isn't what they um, started out <laughs> started out with, and it isn't how it started uh, looking at the beginning. And I completely agree that throwing that much information at the user isn't necessarily helping them accomplish what they need. And frequently, it is a good idea to step back and say, "Okay." You know, at sometimes a person uh, or a person of a certain type needs this kind of information and they maybe when they log in should see it differently than a different person who needs the information differently instead of trying to meet all the user's needs in one big UI. Yeah, I think the control vendors kind of drove that one when they were competing with each other and they would just add a new feature and somebody would say, "Ooh, look what I can do. I could do a grid inside a grid. And it kind of induced people to solve problems that way. But if you cut off that extreme, there's just an awful lot of LOB-style problems that lend themselves to the grid as Excel itself, you know, as spreadsheets well, I think originally the, proved. Would you agree, Ward and, and Deborah, the, the most common scenario for grids that I see is, is really breaks down to people need to show tabular data in some way, rows and columns. They need to be able to page or do virtual scrolling, so have you know lots of data, maybe 10,000 rows, but not all at once. They need to sort, filter, and sometimes edit in line. I mean, those to me, those are the most common features in a business application when you've got lots of data entry. It's not the tree view inside the Russian stacking doll. 
Right. I totally agree with that. And, and Deborah, I mean, that would fit the 90% of the cases you see too, right? Yep. But what we don't know, I mean, as, as Deborah's sorry tale uh, played out, is that I think that, that even that set of functionality is underserved in the Angular or sort of the spa space, at least as far as I know, because I can't put my finger on the grid that, that I would recommend to people that fits just that scenario. I don't know if any of the rest of you guys have something, but I don't have one. Well, the UI, um, UI Bootstrap just came out with a new grid, which used to be called UI Grid and is now NG Grid. And I haven't looked at that. Have you looked at that one? No, I haven't. I, I confess. And I, I haven't either. So I don't know, you know what it looks like uh, at this point. But it might be something if someone's interested in doing a tab-based kind of UI, it might be something at least worth taking a look at. Well, I don't want to get too hung up on this one subject because we'll drown in it. But I do think that what it reveals is something interesting about the direction of these libraries, which is that they, like Angular, but the others too, is the people who are, who are inventing them and leading them are often thinking about a different kind of developer with a different set of problems than the LLB developer faces. And I actually, I don't know if you agree, but I think that there are more LLB developers in this world than there are developers of any other kind who actually get paid for it. And yet it seems as if these design, library designs are not quite catering to them. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the problems with being a line of business developer is that frequently they are not seen because of the fact that they're seen as cost centers. They frequently don't have the budget to be the ones that are at the conferences. They don't have the budgets to be the ones that are, you know, out there doing public kinds of, of activities so that their voice isn't necessarily heard and their time is so short that they're not on, you know, Stack Overflow, at least not answering. They might be using it a lot for gleaning information, but they're just so short on time with everything. And so I think that they're almost like that silent majority that you just don't hear from them all that often because they're just so darn busy. Yeah, Scott Hanselman calls them, uh, what, dark matter developers, right? Which, and it's not a negative term, it, it's the term of, you know, we all know they exist, but we don't always see them. And to be fair, you know, we all frequent these conferences and, and speaking sessions, and some of them come to those, but there's a lot of developers who never get out and interact with some of the other areas because they're deeply nested in their own, uh, their own environments. And that's because that's their job. So learning some of these newer things and working with Angular... I think there's a learning curve in some cases, and trying to apply what your business needs to those is important. And I find often that one of the biggest things that suffers is things like performance. So like having a data grid or having a large data entry form and having a thousand data bindings on a screen, how, how do you handle those kind of things when you're working with some of your customers in these apps, Deborah? One of the things that people fall into with doing Angular is Angular has all of that client-side scripting or client-side filtering, rather. So um, you can bring all the data down, and then you can filter it down. But when you have thousands of rows, you don't want to do that. And they don't necessarily show in any kind of introductory Angular conference or Angular session how you deal with that. And so one of the things that I've been trying to uh, talk about is uh, doing, like, OData, so that you can use OData to do 
uh, server-side paging and to do server-side querying. And uh, so, you know, the user would type in some query string and it wouldn't bring down all the data and then query on the client, but rather it would would do that on the server. So been trying to talk about using OData with Angular so that people know that there is another alternative to using the client-side filtering and hopefully would improve a little bit some of the performance issues that they could otherwise run into. I think the one big thing that is most scary to many of these line of business applications, especially those looking at Angular right now, is where Angular is going. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that? And I, and it isn't just limited to where Angular is going. It's like where, I mean, where Microsoft is going with its tooling too, right? Right. As we mentioned before, one of the really nice things about Angular 1X right now is that you can go into Visual Studio, like Visual Studio 2013, and you can do it using all the same tools and techniques. Now with Visual Studio 2015, changing that up a little bit, uh, Visual Studio Code requires a huge amount of work on the developer side to make it all work and uh, some of these other tools. And you look at Angular 2 and you look at Aurelia. I never know how to say that. Is it Aurelia? (laughs) Uh, And you look at these um, other packages coming down the road. I mean, I started reading about Aurelia and the first thing it says, okay, you have to download NPM and then you have to download this transpiler and you have to download this loader and you have to download this and the other thing. And so eight things later, you finally have something that you can then start to do a Hello World app with. And I think that that's all kind of scary because, you know, again, these developers are looking at, oh my gosh, I have such a short amount of time. I don't have money for a huge amount of training. I don't know, how am I going to learn NPM, Grab, Bauer, Grunt, Transpilers, Loaders, on and on and on and, and still get work done? And I think that there's a lot of, of fear right now as to where that we're going. We're becoming a development society that is all on the command line. And I think that there's a lot of fear about that. Yeah, I think you're 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 right about that. Much as some of us who have the luxury of learning all of that are taking a certain degree of delight in being able to have all these options, it has to be terrifying to anybody who has to who's used to the Visual Studio all in one place world. My sense is uh, that yeah, and I agree with you that the current look of what you know the direction that Visual Studio. 2015 and the whole ASP.NET 5 movement does sort of give you this big junk box with all the parts and pieces in it, and that's got to be scary to people too, you think? I do think, yes. So on the bright side of that, I Mads has met, Mads Chris, have I got the right Mads? Hans Christian Anderson. That, He's been trying to show the kinds of direction that they've been doing in Visual Studio that would, again, create the kind of comfort in visual tooling uh, that would sort of paper over that um, all that knowledge of NPM and Bower and make it a little yeah. bit easier. And isn't that a little interesting word? Because, and, and to get his name right, Mads Christensen is a good friend of ours. He's doing great tooling in Visual Studio, and they've been enhancing the ability to basically make it an easier experience, like sugar on top of NPM and Gulp and things like that, but they're also adding an experience where it's more just a point and click if you want to do your own kind of 
bundling and minification and things like that too. So I think as Deborah had pointed out in the Visual Studio side of the world, they're trying to make it easier for those who've never gone to this command line world to stay where they are and still get a good experience, but also make it such that maybe we can let you use these command line things right from the tool that you know and love. So they're trying to cater to the audience. I don't know how effective it will be, but it's interesting. Yeah, I think they're, uh, yeah, they're all in on trying to do that. I mean, that's been Microsoft's acknowledged strength. Like them, you know, people who like Microsoft or don't, they do admit that Microsoft has always been strong at building these kinds of tools, these point-and-click tools. And so I think that it's absolutely, as you say, uh, Deborah, right at the moment, it's a, it's a giant mess for, for anybody who's coming to it from that. But that Microsoft is working pretty fast in Visual Studio to try and make uh, return to that uh, comforting uh, visual programming experience. Not with VS Code. VS Code, let's be clear, I, I totally agree. That that's an expert's tool that's not for uh, the LLB developer, as far as I can tell. But Visual Studio, they seem to be doing it. Yeah, with code, you can't even just run. So if you write an Angular app in Visual Studio, you can just run it. If you write an Angular app in WebStorm, you can just run it. If you run an Angular, or if you write an Angular app in uh, Visual Studio Code, you can't run it. What do you mean by that, Deborah? You have to actually create a web server to run it with. So you've got to go to the command line and type in some lines of code in order to tell it that you want to launch a web server in order to run your pages, where if you bring up WebStorm, you just click on the little icon that you want to bring it up in IE or uh, whatever browser that you want to use, and it just comes up. It just runs, and you can't even you can't do that in Visual Studio Code. Right, because WebStorm and Visual Studio are are using a built-in simple web server that you can use, whereas VS Code you you could go to command line and type HTTP server and run one, but it's something exactly. that you have to do. Right, exactly and you can right. and you can run te- tests natively in Visual Studio if you happen to have tests. You can run you can debug natively in Visual Studio if you wanted to do that, if you thought that was the right place to do it. And and I think yeah, that some of us might sure. might exactly say it. you know that's not the best way. We don't think that's the best way to do it. But we got to tip our hat to the fact that for LOB developers who are trying to master one thing at a time and have so many other pressures on them, they're making some sense with the way they're trying to attack it. I think there's a lot of room for tooling improvements. I mean, you have to have the right things in place for you have tooling. It's always been this way, right? You don't build a tool before you know what you're going to tool around. So I think there's a lot of value in these IDEs like WebStorm and Visual Studio to be able to provide that experience while there's also, once you kind of get down that road and you understand how those things are working, there's also a lot of room to be using these editors, which are like, you know, let let the tools get out of my way, let me code faster. So for the LOB audience we're talking about, though, I think the perfect starting transition point is a tool like WebStorm or Visual Studio. Gotta agree I agree. Yep. That same sense, I, I have to call out that I don't think it's a good idea to completely ignore that command line is there. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think we're I think we're in agreement there because the way they, Microsoft used to do it is they locked it all behind closed doors, and if you tried to get behind those closed doors, it was it was completely proprietary and hard to figure out and all that XML and stuff. And and now what they're saying is no, we're going to use what the rest of the world uses. We're just going to provide a surface over it, a tooling surface over it that makes it feel comfortable, but 
when, whenever you want to part the curtains and see what's in there, you're actually getting it. You can get, you can do it, and you can get at something that the rest of the world would recognize, and that's a big switch for them. So, Deborah, would you know? There's this Angular two thing hanging out in the world there. So, if you're talking to business developers and you're saying, and, they, and they're asking you, yeah, Deborah, there's this new thing out there called Angular two, and it should I use that? What would you say? I have been recommending to people that they want to keep an eye on what's going on with Angular 2, but definitely not to go there. The other thing that I've been recommending to people, especially people coming to Angular from a a class-based object-oriented programming language like C Sharp or Java, is to take a look at TypeScript. Because I think if you did your Angular app your Angular 1x app today with TypeScript, that it'll be a much easier path to Angular 2 in the future. That sounds really familiar. It does sound familiar. <laughs> oh, is, is that what you guys have been recommending? No, no, no. Already? I mean, I mean we've, we've been hearing that from a number of our guests. And, it, you know, it's curious that you brought that up without our prompting. So it Yeah, just... we had a long discussion and basically came to a very similar conclusion last week, too. So I, I, let me let's play devil's advocate though. I mean, Deborah, with with you not being in that discussion, why do you feel that that's an important way for them to go? A lot of what you're seeing in Angular two, especially in terms of examples and such, are all using uh, TypeScript, and so I think that that's really useful. More importantly, though, for the line of business applications is something that Ward brought up earlier, and that is frequently with line of business applications, you've got rich object models. And if you are used to coding those object models in C Sharp by building classes with properties and methods, using TypeScript and being able to create classes and interfaces and defining properties and methods is going to feel much more natural. And you get IntelliSense. Yes, you do. And, and autocomplete and type yep. checking and yeah. some some form of refactoring, which is re- relatively safe refactoring, which is like deadly in regular JavaScript. So will those things help you avoid issues like 4,000 lines of JavaScript inside of a controller? <laughs> One would hope so, but no tool will prevent a developer from creating bad code if the developer is bent on creating bad code. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I threw you an easy one there, but yeah, (laughs) I see that still. Yeah, and if I can just mention, the course that I'm working on right now for Pluralsight is called Angular with TypeScript. Oh, cool. I know some guys that did a TypeScript course. Yes, and it's kind of a follow-on to that but specifically aimed at, okay, now that you've watched this course and have the basics of doing TypeScript, how do you actually build a good controller? How do you build a service? How do you, you know, put all the pieces together specifically for Angular? Yeah, and I know you, we, you and I spoke before, Deborah, about how VS Code and Angular and TypeScript can work together, and, and I can, we can talk more about that maybe in another session uh, on the show. But I think it's a very interesting paradigm to see not only if you want to do Angular 2 with TypeScript, but how do you do Angular today with TypeScript's uh, and get a great tooling experience. All right, let's go ahead and get get into picks. Joe, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I do. Chuck, yes, I do. I'm going to pick a game this week, as I frequently do. I do like board games. 
So I recently played a board game called Camel Up. I actually purchased a copy of it while I was in Denmark and brought it here. So all the instructions are in Danish, which works out very excellently, but you can easily purchase it here and get the instructions in your native language, wherever here may be. Probably accomplishable. It's a really fun game. It has a lot of depth to it, but it also works very easy. So if you've got... It's you're, you're betting on camel races, so if you've got uh, kids and you want to play with kids, it's great because they really have a lot of fun with the camels moving around and rolling dice to make the camels move, and the camels actually, like, leap each other in the, in the game, and it's really fun for the younger kids. And with a more uh, an older adults, more sophisticated crowd, you're betting on the camel races and trying to calculate the odds as to when to bet and how much to bet. And you don't just get to make any bet of, that you want. You have, like, preset bets that you have to take. So it can be pretty interesting to choose when and how to bet. And I played it a couple of times with some friends just last night and had a great time. So that's going to be my pick is the board game Camel Up. All right. Lucas, what are your picks? So based on our podcast from last week and talking about the state of the world in JavaScript, I have been looking into ES6 and trying to learn that. And there's a book, Exploring ES6, by uh, Alex uh, Rauschmeier, I believe. There's actually a free version online. Uh, I went ahead and purchased the print version or the ebook version. Very good. It reads really well, and I think it's never too soon to start learning ES6 in TypeScript. Nice. Can I ask a question about that? I heard a rumor that they're changing the name from ES6 to ES2015. Is that true? We refuse to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yes, it's okay. Defiant. Anybody besides the uh, people on the TC39 are refusing to acknowledge this name change, but that's true. And ES7 is JavaScript 2016 and... The point of it is to try and get to yearly releases of JavaScript rather than to wait eight years, which is, I think, how long it's taken ES6 to come out. Yeah, and they'll just release whatever happens to be ready and label it with the year is kind of the idea there. Yep. We'll see if they can execute. Yep, so it's true (laughs) everywhere but here. Yes. As a matter of fact, I don't know anybody who has actually vocalized it as ECMAScript 2015. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Yes, it's so much easier to say ES6. <laughs> and I think is it's not ECMAScript 2015, right? Isn't it JavaScript 2015? Oh, I didn't. No. I missed that. I haven't heard it's ES. It's ECMAScript. ES20. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, whatever it is, it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ward, do you have some picks for us? I do. This month of June. One of the world's greatest font designers, Herman Zapf, died. Uh, now, I don't know how many people are into typefaces out there, but he invented a, a lot of them and was a real genius at it. Um, and the, I think the Vietnam War Memorial is done in one of his typefaces. I can't remember. But anyway, fascinating guy. And I'm going to put in a link to a 1960s video of him because he was doing calligraphy as well. And just to watch the art of typeface design and how he talks about it. 
is fascinating. And he's one of the characters that appears in a book that I very much like called Just My Type, which is a book about typefaces by Simon Garfield. So if you're ever feeling like stepping away from the the programming from the code and trying to think about that beautiful type that appears on your screen from time to time and how it comes to be that way. I recommend just my type and I recommend that you look into the life of Herman Zapf. Cool. I'm going to pick a book. I just started reading it. It's called essentialism. I'm really enjoying it. Um, and basically what it is, is it's about getting down to the basic stuff that, get you what you want and say no to all the other stuff. And so I'm not very good at that, but uh, the book is really helping me kind of formulate a lot of that stuff. So I'm going to pick Essentialism by Greg McKeown. I think so I, I, will, I will second that, actually. I just read that a few weeks ago, and it is amazing. Very good book. Awesome. All right, Deborah, what are your picks? Well, I mostly wanted to just provide a link for Angular 1.4. Angular 1.4 was just released May 27th, and I know that was a couple weeks ago already, but I thought it was important for people to uh, know that they still are, even though they are working on Angular 2, that they still are doing improvements to Angular 1.4. And I also wanted to just note that the router... That was promised in 1.3, and then in 1.4, still has not made it. So Angular 1.4, sans the new router, is uh, out and available. New router that was supposed to be out in 1.3. Correct. Didn't make 1.4 either. (laughs) 1.5, maybe. So I'm You're confused so a little bit. Is is 1.4 official? Because I go to the uh, Angular, or, or you know, as I as we talk today, the last stable version on their website it still says 1.3.x. Uh, Code.angularjs.org. You can. I'm I'm going to the wrong place, huh? Well, if you're just going to the front page, I guess it takes some time to update. But Code.angularjs.org is code drops where and there it's also their uh, CDN. Right, but that, but that and that lists all the versions. But how do I know? Is it? it look, oh, there well, it, it is. One dot four dot one doesn't have an RC on it. You're right. Oh, there's one four one already. Oh wow. Yep. No, that, there like is that, no. That that's came the, out yesterday. That's the only one that doesn't have an RC on it. I'm putting a link right in there's there. A, there's a one four zero that doesn't have an RC on it. I'm staring right at it. And I'm missing that joke. Am it's, I? It's up above all the betas and the RC, right below uh, the one point three point nine. Yep. Yep. Well, there you go. Because alphabetically, you. it's before stuff with beta, even though release-wise, it's after. There you go. Well, anyway, news to me. So there it is. It's out. Oh, sure. Enough, there All it right. is. Well, 1.4.1 is the current. <laughs> well, there we go. Deborah, if people want to uh, follow up with you or you know see what you're working on, find your Pluralsight courses, what are the best ways to do that? I can give you both my email address and my Twitter handle. Do you yeah. want to broadcast e- your email address? Email address, that's the, brave. Uh, <laughs> all the listeners, there's... All the fan mail. There's like 5,000 right. listeners, so if you're up, cool with that, go right ahead. All right. Well, thank you for coming. It's been yes, a really interesting you, discussion. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, yes, thank you thank very you. much for having me. All right, well, let's wrap this up, and we'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. 
You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 